And church family, we are indeed very blessed to have Rick Callahan as our pastor of families. It was so encouraging this week just to see kids and adult leaders rejoicing in the Lord, singing to him, and seeing the gospel go forth in power. And I just, I'm so thankful. And, you know, healthy organizations, healthy ministries, healthy churches, healthy families are led by healthy leaders. And I just, I praise God for the leadership that the Lord has allowed to lead this church. It's really a special team, and I am just reveling in the opportunity that I get to be a part of what the Lord is doing here. And Rick Callahan is just an incredible leader, and I'm just so grateful for him and what he, he did this week. You know, one of the more underappreciated occupations in our culture is that of teachers, they are overworked and underpaid and underappreciated. And so for you teachers out there, thank you for all you do. You, you do so much to invest in the future of our country. You invest in future generations. And we are all here better because of what you have done for us. And so thank you. But teachers, I've got a question for you. What happens when you step out of the classroom when I was growing up, there's one word to describe what happens when a teacher steps out of the classroom. Chaos. That is when paper airplanes started flying, lunchbox raids would take place, fights would break out, some kids would try and go and kiss someone else. I mean, it was just bananas, right? It was crazy. But I was that kid who was always afraid that she was going to walk in right when I was about to do something dumb, right? And so I would just sit there and like, oh my goodness, please come back. This is not going well, right? Well, right now we live in a culture that... The teacher is gone. Jesus has died. He has risen. He has returned to heaven. And the world around us is living like the teacher has stepped out of the classroom. But there's coming a day in which the teacher is coming back. And when the teacher comes back, all that has been done, all that has been said will be laid bare because indeed for us, as we live in this time, as we wait for the return of Jesus, indeed the scripture is clear that the end is near. So with this understanding that Jesus' return is imminent, we are compelled by the scriptures to prepare for his return. Okay, so as we wait for his return, what are we to be doing? Well, for first century believers who are scattered throughout modern day Turkey and for 21st century believers who are scattered throughout the world, Simon Peter teaches us in his word exactly what we are to be doing as we wait for the return of Christ. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. The context of 1 Peter is that Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the apostle of Jesus, is now writing to believers scattered throughout five provinces who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. 
They're facing persecution, and he's seeking to undergird their faith with truth, and he's admonishing them, do not back down, do not retreat, remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is calling them to refocus on the gospel. Now, we're in the home stretch of our study through the book of 1 Peter. This is our 23rd message through this book, and Lord willing, we're going to be wrapping this up before the end of July. But I want you to see here in the text that as we go through difficult seasons in life, it is great to be reminded that indeed Jesus is coming back. You see, one of the things that comforts us in the gospel is knowing that when you're going through a difficult season... It's not permanent. If you're having a tough eighth grade year, summer is coming. If you're a CPA who's having a really hard season, April 15th is coming. If you're a UK football fan, it's good to know that basketball season is coming. Okay? See, the beauty of suffering for the believer is knowing that it's not permanent. It's not forever. For us, as we, as we endure difficulty and suffering, Peter here is reminding these first century believers who are persecuted for their faith, it's not forever. In fact, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 20, that we're living in the last days right now. In fact, according to the Bible, the end has already begun. It began with Christ's resurrection and will one day be fully consummated upon his return. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. James chapter 5 verse 8, he writes, You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Well, when you look at verse 7 of chapter 4, Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Now, this statement brought incredible encouragement to believers because the reality of Jesus' return, it compels us to posture our hearts with anticipation and with an expectation that Jesus' return could come at any moment. Well, for Peter's original audience, they're suffering greatly for following Christ. They're facing difficulty. We're going to see next week that they're enduring these fiery trials, these difficulties for following Christ. And the return of Christ is God's reminder that suffering is temporary for the believer. You see, for the believer, suffering is only for a season. No matter what you're going through, it is not permanent. Your suffering in this life will one day come to an end. Maybe in this life, if the Lord sees fit to remove your difficulty from you now, but he promises you one day that when you take your last breath, suffering is over. You see, for the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. But no matter what you're going through right now in your suffering, please know that it's temporary. It's just for a, it's for a season. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, He says, for this light and momentary affliction, light, momentary, what you're going through may not feel like that, but I want to remind you of what Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians of the suffering that he endures, the pain and the difficulty and the strife that he goes through, and yet he regards all of it as light and momentary. 
And he says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And in Romans 8, 19, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see, your physical pain is not permanent in Christ. Your depression is not eternal. Your financial struggle, it is not forever. The end of all things is near, and this is good news for those who are in Christ, because Romans 13, 11, our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. I was at a restaurant recently, and I, I ran into a couple in our church who are senior adults, and I had become aware that he had gotten some really bad news from the doctor. He and his wife were on the brink of going on a vacation together that they had been saving for a long time, and they were looking forward to, but because of the news he got from the doctor, they were no longer allowed to go. And so he felt very discouraged and defeated. And so when I saw them at the restaurant, I walked up and I I put my hand on his shoulder and we talked for a minute. And I just said, I'm so sorry for the news that you got. And I want to remind you that you have a glorified body that's coming. And in this new body, you're not going to hurt and you're not going to die. And he looked back at me square in the eye and he said, that's right. I wanted to remind my brother, we're not home yet. But there is a new earth that is coming that we will have all of eternity to get to explore. You see, as we're going through suffering, please know it's not forever. And so for these first century believers who are suffering for the gospel, imagine how they're just like, is this ever going to end? Does this ever get better? I mean, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. We have to keep enduring this. And so Peter, as he's encouraging them throughout the letter, he reminds them, verse 7, the end is near. The end of all these things is near. And the beauty is that we're closer to this day in which Christ returns. Because every flip of the calendar page, every day that passes by, every tick of the clock's second hand brings us one more moment closer to the return of Jesus. He indeed is returning and coming back. And when Jesus returns, he will not be too early. He will not be too late. He will be right on time. And every day that Jesus waits, it displays his patience. It displays his forbearance with unbelievers. He is allowing unbelievers time, the opportunity to believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus For us, he's giving us more time to show and tell the gospel until he calls us home. So as Jesus prepares his bride for himself, what should we be doing until that day comes? Let me show you these three truths right here in the text. The first is this. Number one, stay alert in prayer. Stay alert in prayer. Look at verse 7. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore... Be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Peter's calling upon first century believers to, to focus upon prayer, to be alert in prayer. See, prayer strengthens your faith, and it focuses you on right priorities. In light of Jesus' return, we are to stay ready, we are to be alert, to be sober-minded. That phrase, sober-minded, means we don't get drunk. 
Now, obviously, we are not to be getting drunk on alcohol, but also we're not to be getting drunk on sin. We're to stay focused and clear-minded, clear-headed in prayer as we see the day approaching. You see, the world and your flesh and the devil want to distract us from the reality of Christ's imminent return. And and our hearts and the world and the enemy, they're continually trying to distract us from focusing on this reality. And so Simon Peter is saying, be alert in prayer. Be sober-minded in prayer. Remember, Christ indeed is coming. In Little League, sometimes coaches, when their team is on defense, they'll yell, baseball ready. Baseball ready. And that is the key or the cue for uh, everyone out there in the field to get in their stance, to get their glove ready, to get their eyes up and be ready. Because oftentimes, if they're lollygagging, if they're staring out into space and a ball is hit, it can come right at them. You ever seen someone get hit by something they weren't expecting? disastrous. Well, coaches want to prepare their kids for that moment, so when the ball comes, they're ready. Well, here in chapter 4, verse 7, Simon Peter, it's almost like he's saying, Jesus ready. Like, get ready. Be alert, because he can come at any time. So be alert. Be sober-minded in prayer. Prepare yourself for his appearance. And this is a day we long for, y'all. We long for this day more than the day we want our driver's license, more than our wedding day, more than the day that our our children uh, are born, more than our grandchildren are born. We long for this day more than we long for our day of retirement. We want the return of Jesus now. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for your return. But instead of being alert and sober-minded, there are many believers who are just playing games with sin, They've taken their eyes off of the task that God has called us to in the Great Commission of making Jesus known amongst all the nations of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, Jesus' return is incumbent upon world evangelization. He will not return a second early so that the gospel is sent to every nation. Hey, church, we have a decision to make. Are we going to be a people about the Great Commission of taking the name of Jesus to every ethnos, every people group on planet Earth? Are we going to be about that? Because Jesus is going to be about that. And if we're not going to be so, he's going to move on to churches that are going to say yes to him and yes to making Jesus known where he is not known yet. So for us, his return is incumbent upon us preaching the gospel, being evangelists right here in Shelby County and to the ends of the earth. So Westwood, let's not lose focus here. It's not time to play church. It's not time to play games with sin. It's time to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. Now remember, the strength of your faith and the strength of our church is dependent upon our prayer life. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes, will he find faith here? May we be a people of prayer. 
we're alert, we're sober-minded because we know Jesus is coming. So let's stay alert for prayer because the end is near. But number two, we're not only to stay alert in prayer, but we are to show love for the church. Look at verse eight. He writes, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Peter says, above all. Okay, so, okay, everything I've said, Peter says, yes, all of that. But above all of that, get this. This is kind of like the, the trench coat over the top. Yes, you've got your suit on. Yes, you've got your tie and your shirt and your, your overcoat. But ultimately, you're putting on the trench coat over the top. Everything beneath it is important and necessary. But he's saying, above all, this is the trench coat, above everything that we've already covered, Verse 8, maintain constant love for one another. That word for constant, it, it means fervent. It means earnest. It, it pictures a, a racehorse that is stretching and striving as, as hard as it can. It's giving maximum effort. It's like, a, like an athlete flexing their muscles from straining to try and win. In the same way, we are to constantly be earnest, yearning, working hard, flexing our muscles in loving one another. Now, this is the mark that we actually belong to Jesus. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, the way that we love one another is the distinguishing mark that proves that we belong to Jesus. Because of the love that we have received in the gospel, you and I now have access to a bottomless pool of water of God's love that we now get to go pour out onto everyone. You have access to the love that you need to love everyone by God's grace. You see, for us, we are to love one another, but let's continue to do so all the more. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. Let's weep with those who weep. Let's pray with one another and pray for one another. And as we grow in love with Jesus, it leads us to love one another in spite of one another's sins. That's what he says there in verse 8. Maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we belittle one another's sins. It's not like we sweep sin under the rug. No, 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 no. But for us as believers who follow Christ, we now are willing to look past the sin in order to still love one another. We're willing to endure the, the difficulty and the strife in that relationship and say, I'm going to cover that sin with the love that I've received in Jesus to maintain the relationship so that we can continue to love one another. Paul says it like this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were sinful, even while we were rebellious, even when we were shaking our fist in his face, he still loved us and he still died for us. Well, in the same way, Peter says, you are to be earnest and fervent, constantly loving one another and it's amazing that as you, as you love one another, that the Lord uses you to look past the sins of one another because love covers a multitude of sins. But this love, it also carries a crockpot. 
Look at verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Being hospitable means that you welcome, you invite, you include people at your fellowship. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is 2 Samuel 9 with David and Mephibosheth. You'll remember Mephibosheth is a a man who, as a little boy, was dropped as a baby and his legs were lame. He's the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan, and in the midst of a terrible situation, a tragic situation, he loses his ability to walk. And David is reviewing his life, and he says in 2 Samuel 9, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And they say, yeah, there's one man. His name is Mephibosheth. And he says, bring him to me. So Mephibosheth is brought to King David in a panic, like, oh, no. He's going to kill me. And instead, King David says, Mephibosheth, you are always going to eat at my table. I am going to provide for your family. I'm going to make sure you're well taken care of. In fact, Ziba, I want you to grab your family and your sons, and you guys are going to go farm his land and provide food for him. And Mephibosheth, you are always welcome at my table, and you're going to eat with me. That's exactly what God has done for us in the gospel. We are spiritually lame. And yet Jesus invites us to his table and says, you're always going to come and eat with me. I've got a seat at the table with your name on it. Well, just as God has done that for us in the gospel, so too are we now to go and do the same. We are hospitable towards one another. We invite people to the table. We invite people to our small group. We invite people to our homes. We invite people to lunch. Can I say to you, it is everyone's responsibility in this room to meet visitors when they come on this campus and to engage them in conversation. We need everybody doing it. It's not just for those who are greeters and those who are door holders. It's for everybody. It's amazing. I see it every week. When visitors come in here, their eyes are as big as saucers. This place is huge. It's terrifying. It's scary. There's a man in our church who's a solid believer, and his family joined about a year and a half ago. He says, when I came on campus, I was so nervous. And this guy is mature, and he works with churches all the time. But he said, when I came, I just felt scared. And this is a guy who's one of us. Imagine those who aren't. And so I want to encourage you is to go up and engage people in conversation. Be hospitable. Hey, come sit with me and my family. What are you doing after church today? Let's go get lunch. Let's hang out. Are you in a small group? Yeah, no, come on. Come with us. Come hang out with us. I want to include you. Why? Because no one should feel like they're the last kid picked at kickball. No one should have to feel that way when they engage with the body of Christ. Why? Because Jesus included us. He invited us. He showed hospitality to us in the gospel. So Westwood, all of us, let's practice this. Let's love one another. Let's be intentional about engaging people and opening up our homes and going to Chick-fil-A and buying dinner and lunch and saying, hey, let's talk about life. And this is what we do as believers. Tonight, we're, we have an incredible event. I can't wait for it. It's a tailgate and fireworks. And I want to encourage you, when you come, bring extra food. And if you see people don't know, invite them to come and eat with you. Invite them to your tent. Invite them to come play with your kids. This place is going to be blanketed with people and lots of kids, so so drive slow. But this place is going to be great, but I want to encourage you, let's be hospitable. Let's include and invite people. Can Can I just say, if you're over the age of 50, would you fill up your schedule with appointments with young people? Young dads need older men to encourage them. 
Younger moms need older women to encourage them, give them wisdom, point them in the right direction. As messed up as millennials like me are, and we got issues, we're eager to be mentored. Young men and young women want the wisdom of those who have gone before them. So I want to encourage you to leverage your kitchen table, leverage your, your, your resources to be hospitable to one another. Third and finally, as we wait for Jesus' return, we are to leverage your spiritual gifts. Leverage your spiritual gifts. Verse 10 says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You see, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Verse 10. The moment you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit gave you a spiritual gift. In many of us, he gave you many spiritual gifts. And these gifts are not for yourself, verse 10. You are to use it to serve one another. If you use your spiritual gift for yourself, you're missing the purpose. The Lord is not going to show favor upon someone who uses their gift for themselves. Okay, go read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those, those two chapters, 12 and 14, are all about spiritual gifts. And Paul says, quit bragging about the spiritual gift and using it for yourself, but rather 1 Corinthians 13, use it for the sake of love. You see, your spiritual gift has been given to you by God for the sake of building up his church, of serving others, pointing others to Jesus, growing them in the gospel. And you are to use it as a steward, verse 10. You're a manager of your gift. And your gifts that God's given to you, you use them. But notice here in the text the two general categories that spiritual gifts will fall under. The first is speaking God's word. Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. You see, Christ gave his church, Ephesians 4.11, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. God has given his church men and women who are to teach God's word. They're called to speak. They're called to use words out of their mouths to build up and encourage the church. But whose words are they supposed to use? Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, God's words. This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, correcting, for encouraging, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Paul goes on to say in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says to his young protege, he's a pastor, Timothy of Ephesus, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. You are to preach the word. Why? Because there's coming a day in which people will gather around themselves teachers who will itch their ears what they want to hear. They'll make them feel good by what they want to hear. They're going to gather lots and lots of teachers. But as for you, preach the word. 
We are not responsible for how other churches preach and teach and the content of what they deliver. We're responsible for us. And for us as a church, we are to be a people of the book. And so if God has called you to be one who speaks, make sure you are speaking God's word. How do I know if what I'm saying is God's word? How do I know if when someone says, I speak for God, it really is from him? The answer is, it agrees with the Bible. If anyone says something that is, in, that is not in alignment with Scripture, it is not from God. God will always speak in affirmation and in alignment with his word. So if God has called you to speak, speak with passion, with boldness and courage, with joy and with tenderness. Be full of the Holy Spirit and be completely in aligned with God's word. So one category is speaking God's word. The second is serving God's people. It's serving God's people. Verse 11, he says, if anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. The first category is verbal. Second category is physical. Some spiritual gifts are for teaching and preaching and evangelism and others. They're for administrating, caring for the poor and for the sick, for being hospitable, serving with your hands. We're to use the resources that God has given to us to bless others. In Acts chapter 6, the early church had their first conflict that took place. As the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Jesus and the God is moving throughout the early church, you get to chapter 6 and an issue has come up. The Hellenistic Jews, their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And they're like, hold up, that ain't fair. All these Jewish widows are getting food, but these Gentile women, these widows, they're not getting their food. What's up, apostles? So the apostles huddle up and they say, all right, guys, what are we going to do? We cannot neglect the, the, the preaching of God's word. The ministry of the word has to have priorities. What are we going to do? And they say, let's do this. Let's get some guys together, and their job is to care for the widows, to take care of those physical needs throughout the church. Great idea. Let's go do it. Verse 7 of chapter 6, and the word of God continued to flourish, and the number of disciples continued to increase. Everybody wins. Now, what's important here is this. There's not one spiritual gift that's more important than the other. The mouth cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. The ear cannot say to the nose, who needs you? No, no, no. Every member is important to the body. And God has gifted you with gifts. And if you're not using them, our church is not what it could be. We are deficient if you're sitting on your spiritual gifts. So I want to encourage you to leverage it. Use the gifts that God has given to you, not for your glory, not for your name, but for the building up of his church. That's what your spiritual gift is for. And so you use your gifts for the benefit of others so that the church can continue to flourish, the gospel can go forth, and the word continues to spread. You know, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, Kenneth, I don't know what my, my spiritual gift is. Um, you can go to our website, gowestwood.org forward slash serve. The bottom of the page, click on assess me. It'll take you to another website that will help you walk through to help you discover what your spiritual gifts are. And that's just a great way. But even if you're like, nah, I don't have time for all of that, do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do and you'll be fulfilling your spiritual gifts. Just go do it. 
Obey the leading of the Spirit that's in alignment with his word. Here's the impact point. Live with the end in mind. That's Peter's point. This week, as you and I are about to be commissioned off this campus, we are to go live with the end in mind because reality is there's coming a day in which Jesus will return. So let me ask you this. If you knew that Jesus was coming back one month from today, how would you live differently? Would you do things differently? Would you live differently? May I say to you that if you will live with the end in mind and you say, Jesus, I want all of my life to be about making much of you, it is then that verse 11 takes place. He gets the glory through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's go make much of Jesus by living with the end in mind. Let's pray.